Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In the early morning hours of April 10th, 1836, Rosina Townsend woke up to a knock at the front door of her New York City brothel. The madam was used to letting customers in at all hours of the night, so she quietly slipped out of bed to unlatch the door. Still in her nightclothes, Rosina guided the man to his room and turned around, eager to climb back into bed. But then she noticed a strange light coming from the parlor. It was an oil lamp sitting on a marble-top table in the empty parlor. There were only two lamps like it in the house. Both were supposed to be in bedrooms on the second floor of the brothel. As Rosina walked over to the lamp, she was struck by a cold gust of wind. The door to the backyard was hanging open. This seemed strange. It was an unseasonably cold spring night in New York, and it had snowed only a few days earlier. But someone had still left the door open. She grabbed the lamp and headed upstairs. All the brothel's bedroom doors were locked, except for one, Helen Jewett's room. Rosina was surprised that Helen, a 23-year-old sex worker, would leave the door open. She cautiously pushed on the door. Suddenly, a column of hot black smoke poured out into the hallway. Through the smoke, Rosina saw the full, horrifying scene inside Helen's room. The bed was on fire, with Helen's motionless, burning body still lying on top of it. Within hours, the entire city of New York was talking about the murder of Helen Jewett. And once the city's new tabloid newspapers picked it up, the case quickly became one of the biggest and most divisive crimes of the 19th century. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our first episode on the murder of Helen Jewett. This week, we'll cover Helen's life as a sex worker in New York City and her relationship with Richard Robinson. Next week, we'll dive into the aftermath of her death and why her murderer was never brought to justice. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. 
Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Helen Jewett went by many different names in her short life. Whenever she wanted a fresh start or moved to a new city, she would change it. But when she was born in Augusta, Maine on October 18, 1813, her parents named her Dorcas Doyan. The young Dorcas was born into a large working-class family. Her father was a shoemaker who had lived in rural Maine for his entire life. He struggled with alcoholism and could rarely hold down a job for more than a few months. When Dorcas was around 10 years old, her mother died. Unable to care for her anymore, her father sent her away and arranged for Dorcas to be a live-in servant for a wealthy family. It turned out to be a major opportunity for the young girl. Domestic work was easy for Dorcas. She quickly became one of the most in-demand young servants in the city. In 1825, when Dorcas was 12 years old, she got a more permanent position as a servant in the house of Nathan Weston, Chief Justice of Maine's Supreme Judicial Court. Judge Weston agreed to keep her as a housekeeper and playmate for his daughters until her 18th birthday. With that, Dorcas had found a home again. While she cooked and cleaned for the Weston family, Dorcas carefully observed the customs and habits of the upper classes. She made a point to mimic their speech patterns and etiquette. Little by little, she learned how to blend in among the New England elite. Would you care for some coffee, Mrs. Royal? Oh, yes, I would. Thank you, miss. You've done well with that one. I don't think I have ever seen a servant as sweet and graceful as your little... Dorcas. Isn't she precious? We took her in about a year ago. She fits in with the children so well you'd think she was one of my own. (laughs) And when she's not fixing our coffee or hanging the laundry, her nose is always in a book. Here you are. Oh, you might be the most darling child I've met in this town, maybe even in the state. I simply must include you in my book. Is that all right, Mrs. Weston? Of course, the world deserves to know our little Dorcas. Ah, perfect. Soon everyone will know your name. (laughs) Dorcas's good manners even made her into a bit of a local celebrity when a writer named Anne Royal wrote about her in one of her popular travel books. But when Anne Royal asked Dorcas for her age, she claimed to be 11 years old, even though she was really 13. She would continue to lie about her age for her entire life, always claiming to be two to four years younger than she actually was. The past seemed to be a fluid thing for Dorcas, who always preferred fiction to fact. Dorcas may have been a poor shoemaker's daughter, but she felt she belonged in the upper class, and she acted like it. Dorcas's life was better than the average servants. She had access to education and books, comfortable living quarters, nice clothes, and invitations to parties and dances with Judge Weston's daughters. And she was smart. The Westons quickly recognized Dorcas's intellect and worked to foster it. They encouraged her to engage in the worlds of music, art, and foreign languages. 
They also gave her plenty of time to read. She loved the popular novels and poetry of the time and developed a lifelong love for the writings of Lord Byron. Dorcas's ability to read and her seemingly unlimited access to books was a rare thing for a girl in the 1820s. At the time, women's literacy rates in the Northeast United States were still trailing men's, but they were growing quickly. Due to advances in printing technology, books had become easier and cheaper to produce. For the first time, nearly everyone in North America had access to mass-produced novels and pamphlets. Religious leaders and moral reformers worried that these popular texts would lead to corruption among young people— who might replace their habit of studying the Bible with modern novels. They warned that solitary reading allowed teenagers, especially teenage girls, to indulge their emotions and sexual urges, which could lead to moral depravity later in life. Luckily for Dorcas, the Westons didn't worry about that. They let her read anything in their library and allowed her to go to the nearby bookshop as much as she wanted. But by her late teenage years, it seems that Dorcas began going to the bookstore for more than just reading. Dorcas fell in love with an older man who had talked to her all about books. Historians believe that this man was Harlow Spalding, the owner of a bookshop only five minutes from the Weston house. Uh, Harlow, I just finished reading The Corsair, and I simply must talk about it with you. Please tell me that you have Byron's next book in stock. <laughs> I sent for it a week ago. Patience is a virtue, Dorcas. I don't think I can wait much longer. <laughs> Look at me. I'm blushing just thinking about it. Oh, forgive me. But just imagining loving someone so much that you die when they depart. Oh, isn't it just the most romantic thing you can think of? <laughs> you are adorable. <laughs> I thought the ending was more tragic than romantic, but... I suppose you're right. You know so much more about literature than I do. At the rate you're going, you'll be caught up to me in no time. Say, would you be interested in another little walk by the river tonight? Uh, once the master and mistress are asleep? I would be thrilled to see those blushing cheeks again. Well, I'd be more inclined to say yes if you had my book. But I can make an exception. Unfortunately, this budding relationship may have ruined Dorcas's life in Augusta. She was supposed to stay in the Weston house until her 18th birthday, but moved out a year early in the fall of 1830. According to a letter from Judge Weston, she was pushed out of the city's social circles after having premarital sex with a young man in town. It is unclear who the man was, though Harlow Spaulding is a strong possibility. It's also possible that her first partner was a male member of the Weston family, or Judge Weston himself, and that she was sent away to preserve their reputation. But whatever the case, 17-year-old Dorcas Doyan was forced to leave Augusta and move to Portland, Maine. When she got there, she changed her name for the first time. Dorcas Doyen became Maria Stanley. And as a young woman without money or a family, she turned to sex work to make ends meet. After a few months in Portland, she moved to Boston, where she changed her name again. This time, she became Helen Marr. Sex workers commonly used pseudonyms to protect their identity, but few had as long of a string of them as Helen. 
and when she moved to New York City in 1832, the 19-year-old changed her name once again to Helen Jewett. At the time, Helen Jewett was only the latest in a string of personas. She had no idea that this name would carry her to the highest levels of New York society and then to her grave. We'll cover Helen's life as a New York sex worker up next. Hi, listeners. Carter here with a quick but special announcement. The newest Spotify original from ParCast is unlocking the mysteries of superstitions. If you've ever broken a mirror or walked under a ladder, you know the feeling. You've just doomed yourself to bad luck. But have you really been marked for misfortune? Every week on Superstitions, take a closer look at eerie, almost mystical beliefs and practices that might just have the power to change our fates. Can holding your breath while passing a cemetery save your life? Will carrying a rabbit's foot bring you luck? How can you go through life always avoiding the number 13? And why should you try? They may seem mystical or even completely illogical, but one thing is certain. You ignore them at your own risk. You can find and follow Superstitions free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. To hear more ParCast shows, search ParCast Network in Spotify's search bar and find a growing slate of thrilling new series to enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to our story. The early 1830s were a time of dramatic growth for New York. The completion of the Erie Canal transformed the city, turning a large port town into a key waypoint between the Atlantic Ocean, the Great Lakes region, and the massive American interior. Goods, money, and people surged through the city. Between 1830 and 1835, more than 70,000 people moved onto the island of Manhattan alone. One of these transplants was 19-year-old Helen Jewett, the woman formerly known as Dorcas Doyan. Helen had left her birth name behind and headed to New York with a plan to be a sex worker. New York's sex trade was thriving alongside the city. Unattached young men had moved to the city in droves, looking for clerkships in local shops. These men lived in cramped, all-male boarding houses and often ached for female companionship. Older men, as well, would often arrive in the city on business trips and seek out commercial sex in their free time. By Helen Jewett's arrival in 1832, New York was America's number two city for sex work, second only to New Orleans. And despite the rigid moralism of the 19th century, New Yorkers tended to quietly approve of and allow sex work at the time. Selling sex for money was not strictly illegal, and as long as the transaction took place in private, authorities turned a blind eye. But even though their work was done in the shadows, sex workers were anything but anonymous. 
Many of them were well-known members of their communities and neighborhoods and made no effort to conceal their trade. This was especially true of those in the highest echelons of the business who often lived in lower Manhattan, while sex workers in lower-income neighborhoods like the Five Points District would solicit their customers on the street, Manhattan sex workers let the clients come to them. These women served only a small number of regular clients and dressed up their transactions with flirtation and romance. They lived in one of the wealthiest parts of the city and served powerful businessmen and politicians, which meant they were hardly ever investigated or arrested. 19-year-old Helen was already experienced in selling sex by the time she arrived in New York. She knew how to play the part of a sophisticated lady and easily inserted herself into the world of high-society sex work. Helen moved into a brothel in downtown Manhattan, frequented by wealthy merchants and their younger, not-so-wealthy clerks. Helen quickly became so popular that a newspaper editor would later claim she was well-known to every pedestrian on Broadway. Helen! Oh, Mr. Attree, I didn't recognize you with your cravat on. A girl on the town can only be expected to remember so much, I suppose. Where are you off to? You know I walk this route to deliver my letters. I can only hope that one of those letters is addressed to me. Oh, well, let's see. Mr. Marston, Mr. Taylor, Mr. Harrison. No, it looks like there's nothing for a Mr. Attree in here. Try coming around the house more often. I've already been twice this month. My bank account is nearly empty. Oh, then I'll see you after your next payday. Ciao. By 1835, 22-year-old Helen had built up a small but consistent base of clients, each of whom was willing to pay handsomely to see her. She lived in a house with about a dozen other sex workers who each worked out of their rooms, paying the madam $12 per week for lodging. This was a very high price. A typical boarding house in 1835 would charge about $2 for the same amount of time. But Helen rarely worried about money. She made about $50 a week, which was an incredible sum for a woman at the time. She stuffed her closet with fine dresses and jewelry, and even hired a private maid to clean her room twice a day and help her get dressed for the evening. She went to the theater nearly every night and still had plenty of time to read her favorite books. In many ways, Helen was finally living the ideal upper-class lifestyle she had dreamed of as a young servant. Men would pay between three and five dollars each time they saw her. Considering that most of them made between four and ten dollars per week, this was a substantial investment. Sex workers at Helen's level did a lot more than have sex with their clients. They entered into a relationship with them, albeit one that was mediated by money, and often played the part of a wife more than a sex partner. Helen sent her clients long, flattering love letters. She read poetry with them, played cards, and even mended their clothing if they asked. She gave her clients the thrill of courtship and the emotional support of a long-term relationship without any burden of commitment. For those who wanted to bask in female attention without sacrificing their bachelor lifestyle, it was an ideal arrangement. Whenever she got close to a client, Helen gradually started to tell them more about her life and how she came to sex work. These stories were never true, 
and often sounded like they were ripped from the cheap novels she read as a girl. Tales of a pure little girl forced into a life of sin by cruel lovers or mustache-twirling villains. Helen tailored her story to each customer. She wanted them to pity her or feel that they alone could understand where she came from. This false intimacy kept her clients coming back and paying handsomely. But because she was so emotionally involved, 22-year-old Helen also had to make it clear that sex work was her livelihood. To keep business going, she couldn't actually fall in love with any of the men that she saw. Most of her customers understood this, like her frequent client, George Marston. George was a typical customer for Helen. He was the son of a New England lawyer who moved to the city to work at a stationery store. He made low wages but still visited the brothel at least once a week, where he went by the name Bill Easy. <laughs> I win again! I told you never to challenge me to a game of cards. <laughs> if only I had listened. But before we start another game, would you like to come upstairs? I'll be so lonely tonight if you don't. After your letter? How could I say no? <laughs> come on, then. Wait, uh, before you take off your dress... Uh, I so appreciated that pincushion that you gave me last week. It was so well-crafted, you see, and even the women in the house were amazed by it. Get to the point, Bill, please. You want another piece of sewing from me? Well, I am in need of a new tablecloth. Include the dimensions in your next letter and I'll get to it. I'll expect a gift in return, though. You understand. Of course, Helen. I'll enclose it in the envelope. Good. Now... Help me undo these clasps. Most of the time, Helen's strategy worked. Regular clients like George Marston rarely became jealous or territorial. Some even actively invited their friends to start seeing Helen. Though Helen was comfortable, life as a sex worker was never entirely safe. The threat of violence at the hands of a client was always present, and she occasionally had to ban someone from the house— because he acted inappropriately or got the wrong idea about their relationship. By June of 1835, 22-year-old Helen had become an expert in choosing her clients and maintaining her boundaries. But all that changed when she met Richard Robinson. According to some accounts, Richard first saw Helen being accosted by a drunk outside a Manhattan theater. What's a harlot like you doing in a fine theater, eh? Think you're special or something? Get away from me, you animal! Oh, help! Help! I'll need to look through your purse before I let you go, won't I? Hey, step away from her! <clears throat> fine. Just having a bit of fun, see? Here's your purse, miss. Are you all right? I am now. Thank you. I don't know how I would have gotten out of that on my own. You were so brave to save me. Uh, I didn't even stop to think. Well, here's my calling card. You're welcome to visit me on Thomas Street anytime you'd like. Oh, Thomas Street. I'm afraid I don't have money for... Free of charge. The first time, at least. When he met Helen in June of 1835, 
18-year-old Richard Robinson had just moved to New York City from Durham, Connecticut. His father was a powerful man, having served eight terms in the state legislature. Richard attended the best schools in the area before leaving for New York, where he found a job clerking for a cloth merchant. When Helen first met him, Richard seemed like a clever, chivalrous young man. But he had a dark side. He was a frequent patron of gambling houses and lower-class brothels, where he used the name Frank Rivers, and had already been in several scrapes with the police when Helen had met him. Richard entered into a relationship with Helen on the same terms as any other client. He would pay her in both attention and money, and he'd get sex, conversation, and something close to romance in return. But the lines between sex work and genuine intimacy quickly blurred. In the beginning of their relationship, 22-year-old Helen used all of her usual tricks on Richard. She sent him letters on fine stationery, telling him he was like no one she'd ever met before, and slowly revealing her tragic, made-up backstory. My dear Richard, you wish me to write you, but I already say so much when we're together that I find myself at a loss for words. I do not need to tell you again how much I enjoy your company. I think we can agree that I've already made that perfectly clear. I have met very few persons who I could share in all my feelings with, and you are one of those few. I love you madly. Devotedly yours, Helen. Her first few letters were almost identical to the ones she sent to other men, but as they continued to write to each other, Helen's writing became more honest and vulnerable. For two months, the couple seemed to be genuinely in love, but in August of 1835, their honeymoon period ended abruptly. Richard's secrets were suddenly revealed, and his true, dangerous nature became clear. Coming up, Helen and Richard's complicated love affair goes sour. Now, back to the story. In August of 1835, the relationship between 22-year-old sex worker Helen Jewett and 18-year-old clerk Richard Robinson started to lose its shine. First, Helen found out that Richard was visiting other brothels in New York City. Of course, Helen was in the business of infidelity, and most of her clients were probably seeing other women. But in Helen's eyes, Richard wasn't like the other men she served. He was an intellectual equal and romantic partner. He had led her to believe that they had an exclusive arrangement. Many of Helen's friends and colleagues knew about Richard's misdeeds, but he kept them silent by threatening to blow the brains out of any woman who exposed his infidelity to Helen. When she finally learned the truth, Helen was devastated. I can't believe you've done this, Richard! Done what? Been a young man in the city? You don't know how much it hurts to know I've been lied to. Oh, so you're allowed to be sleeping around telling all sorts of fantastic tales about your life while I wait around to earn your favor? It's different, Richard, and you know that. I thought you were different, too. Oh, don't cry to me, you whore! Richard! Take that back! (sighs) 22-year-old Helen had seen hints of Richard's dark side before. 
His letters often contained references to feeling like he was different from everyone around him or like no one understood him. He would often write descriptions of night terrors and violent fantasies in one line and then over-the-top declarations of love in the next. Helen initially thought he was romantic, but this incident forced her to see that Richard was just a selfish, angry man who didn't really care about her feelings. Helen broke off contact with Richard for a few weeks, but eventually forgave him. They continued to see each other through the fall and winter of 1835, falling into an all-too-predictable cycle of fights, breakups, and reconciliations. They may have also found their way into a life of crime as well. In several letters from the fall of 1835, Richard referred to another one of Helen's clients as the cashier. Richard seemed to be intent on avoiding the cashier, but listed off several names for Helen to mention to him. In one particularly cryptic letter, Richard warned Helen that she could get hurt if she made a mistake. It's possible that Richard drew Helen into an embezzlement scheme, using her connections to further his own goals. The cashier was either in on the plot or an investigator looking to arrest Richard. In November of 1835, the pair had their second major fight. Richard became angry with Helen and threatened her physically. But when she started to pull away, he begged for forgiveness. Helen seemed to write this incident off and take him back easily. Just days after the November blowout, she promised to give him a tiny portrait of her for his bedroom. The exchange of miniature paintings was a common courtship tactic in the 19th century. The fact that Helen brought it up indicates that Richard was still a romantic prospect, even as he made her life more and more difficult. But just a few days after he asked for forgiveness, Richard sent a letter suggesting they break up, saying that he was no longer worthy of Helen's affections. Helen wouldn't hear it, though. She convinced him to rekindle their relationship again. This dramatic back and forth continued into the spring of 1836, when Helen was 23 and Richard was 18. Both parties seemed to understand that they were not good for each other, but neither of them could walk away. Every argument or physical fight culminated with a promise to stay together. Helen continued to see clients, which angered Richard, and he continued to visit other sex workers to get back at her. Helen's friends could see the toll that this relationship was taking and begged her to forget about Richard. But Helen refused. She only became more desperate for his attention. The couple hit their final breaking point in March of 1836. Helen moved into a new brothel operated by 39-year-old Rosina Townsend, who she had worked with throughout her time in New York. Shortly after she moved in, 23-year-old Helen came to Rosina in tears, telling her that Richard sent back all of her letters and gifts from the past 10 months. He had requested that she do the same. Richard had threatened to break up with Helen countless times before, but the mutual return of letters was far more serious and formal than she had ever seen before. It really felt like the end. Helen told Rosina that she suspected Richard was getting married to another woman, but this was unlikely. Richard was only 18 years old and seemed to enjoy his bachelor lifestyle. 
It's possible that Richard was involved in an unplanned pregnancy and marrying the mother to cover up for it, or that he had jumped into a fast-moving relationship to distance himself from Helen. Regardless of the reason, Helen wanted to have the last word. She wrote to Richard before agreeing to return their letters. She insisted that he come to see her one last time and threatened to humiliate him if he didn't. She hinted at Richard's crimes, implying that she could expose his embezzlement schemes whenever she liked. Helen's threats worked. Richard agreed to visit her on the night of his 19th birthday. And so on April 9th, 1836, Helen told Rosina to not allow in her regular Saturday night customer, George Marston, and let Richard in instead, under his pseudonym, Frank Rivers. Come in. Rosina, a bit of a change of plan tonight. My usual Saturday visitor isn't coming. Someone else is. Frank Rivers. The same man whose letters you were blubbering over last weekend? Well, yes. But I've decided to take him back. My heart will break in two if he proceeds with marrying anyone, and... Besides, I know how to keep him in line now. That one never seemed right in the head if you ask me. But you girls make your own decisions. I'll let him in at nine. Thank you, Ms. Townsend. Rosina Townsend opened the door for Helen's guest between 9 and 10 p.m. on April 9, 1836. Richard had his face covered by a cloak, but Rosina knew him well enough to recognize his voice and stature. He went straight to Helen's room and stayed there until two hours later when Helen emerged to ask Rosina for a bottle of champagne. Rosina brought the champagne and glasses up to Helen's room. Helen invited the madam to have a drink with him, but Rosina turned her down. She talked to Helen for a few minutes in the hallway and saw Richard lounging in Helen's bed through the open doorway. He was calmly reading by candlelight. As Helen said goodnight and shut the door, it seemed to Rosina that the couple had once again decided to make up with each other. That was the last time Helen Jewett was seen alive. Rosina headed off to bed. She slept soundly until the early hours of the morning when she awoke to someone pounding on her bedroom door. You know the rules. If you want to leave after midnight, get your woman to let you out. Can't have just anyone coming and going. But she's... Never mind. A stupid boy. The conversation was so short that the man in Rosina's bed didn't even wake up. She fell asleep, but then was woken again by another knock. It was a regular customer there to see another sex worker in the house. Rosina verified his identity and led him upstairs. But as she shuffled back to bed she noticed a lamp in the parlor, one that should have been in an upstairs bedroom. Then she saw the backyard door hanging open. Someone had tried to get out and fast. Rosina started checking the second floor bedrooms and was surprised to find Helen's door unlatched. Girls would almost always lock the door from the inside when they had a visitor. With the lamp still clutched tightly in her hands, Rosina pushed the door open. The huge wooden bed in the corner of Helen's room was on fire, and her small, charred body lay motionless on top of it. 
She was naked with three bloody wounds marking her forehead. Rosina immediately screamed for help. Eventually, she got the attention of a group of night watchmen standing outside. Within minutes, the men started dousing the bed with water. Once the fire was out, the watchman turned to Rosina to ask her who could have killed 23-year-old Helen Jewett. Rosina only had one suspect in mind, Richard Robinson. Next week, we'll cover Richard Robinson's controversial trial and why he was acquitted of a murder that he almost certainly committed. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of the murder of Helen Jewett. For more information on Helen Jewett, amongst the many sources we used, we found Patricia Klein Cohen's book, The Murder of Helen Jewett, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Kylie Harrington with writing assistance by Giles Hofseth. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Bill Butts, Tiana Camacho, K.G. Tang, Kimlin Tran, and Jen Wong. It stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Remember to follow Superstitions for new episodes featuring our most unusual beliefs. Are they side effects of ancient folklore or truly the masters of our fates? Look closely and examine the writings on the wall. Superstitions airs every Wednesday free on Spotify. 